0: Welcome to the 14th episode of the 39A podcast. This is Adrijja Ghosh from Project 39A, an organization that conducts interdisciplinary research on a range of issues dealing with the criminal justice system. In today's episode, we are in conversation with Dr. Durba Mitra, who is an assistant professor of women, gender and sexuality, and Carol K. Forsheimer assistant professor at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University. In her book, Indian Sex Life, Sexuality and the Colonial Origins of Modern Social Thought, published in 2020, Dr. Mitra demonstrates how the idea of deviant female sexuality became foundational to the knowledge project that was India. She has also written about the prejudicial use of forensic evidence in rape adjudication in post-colonial India. Today, we will speak to her about the contemporary relevance of her work, with a focus on how legal and extra legal regulation of women's sexuality, through criminal law and otherwise, continues in India. Welcome, Dr. Mitra, and thank you for agreeing to speak to me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I am just so happy to be here and to be having this conversation with you all.
0: Likewise. My first question is more general and perhaps will allow you the opportunity to briefly describe your work to our audience. Why do you think an audience that is interested in criminal law and criminological thought in India should read your work and what do you think they can take away from your work?
1: What a great question. Um, So... My work which uh, this the first book Indian Sex Life uh, looks at the development of social thought and theory in um, 19th and early 20th century eastern India really is a book that centers or itself or really it starts from a long interest in thinking about the law and so in some ways the genesis of the project is in fact the criminal law itself and much of the project looks at the question of the law as a project in understanding social life, um, uh, particularly in chapters two and three of the book, which I'll talk about more, I'm sure, um, where I look at the way criminal law shaped the understanding of society itself, and in particular how criminal laws that that engage the idea of feminized sexuality or deviant female sexuality, as I describe it in the book, uh, shape the development of criminal law uh, through the penal code and beyond. And so really, I think, I mean, for for any scholar who is interested, scholar, students, people who are actively working in legal contexts, um, understanding the colonial period is of course essential for thinking about post-colonial India because colonial law has such a strong imprint on the nature of law in contemporary India. And so in that way, I think that there's a lot of relevance, but in in particular, my book is centered on the question of feminized sexuality. And I think that, a, Anyone really interested in feminist issues and issues around gender and sexuality in thinking about the policing of sexuality in historical and contemporary South Asia um, will find lots of resonance with these questions in thinking about contemporary legal problems today, whether we're talking about rape law, whether we're talking about uh, recent discussions about abortion um, and infanticide, to even broader discussions about policing and criminalization of public spaces more broadly in India today.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Mitra, for that explanation. I think I would like to pick on one of the things that you talk about, which is abortion and infanticide. In your book, you talk about infanticide and, more interestingly, abortion being described in medical legal archives as a crime of concealment, which then is somehow used to prove the deviance of Indian women. To what extent do you think a similar logic underlies the enduring criminalization of abortion in India, despite its partial liberalization for population control purposes under the Medical Termination of Pregnancy Act?
1: That's a great question. So the book overall, uh, Indian Sex Life, is uh, an examination about how a broad range of ideas of female, deviant female sexuality, as I describe it, or ideas of women's sexual deviancy shape the development of colonial law, colonial sociology, um, and more broadly, the colonial social sciences. And one of the ways that I look at this is through the adjudication and use, I mean, kind of court decisions and, and the way judges think about the problem of infanticide and abortion. And also, um, in particular, in Chapter 3, Circularity, I look at cases of abortion and, as you say, the development of forensics around the the medical-legal evidentiary paradigms that shape abortion. So in the chapter on abortion, one of the things that, as you described, I argue is that the crime of concealment... I mean, abortion is a strange is a strange act. Um, If we think about the penal code, of course it's under the provisions related to the bodily body, but it's a strange act because it's difficult to detect. And so it becomes an evidentiary conundrum for the colonial state when it's outlawed under the penal code in 1861. And so the discussion is how are you supposed to detect that a crime has happened? And one of the things that I argue is that in fact, there's a circular logic for determining the nature of the crime, which marries forensics, that is to say, the supposed medical legal mandates or, or evidentiary paradigms, to sociological understandings of Indian women. And we can, uh, meaning that when women were seen as sexually deviant, whether they were supposedly pregnant because they were widows or they were unmarried, um, women who were. Really, a wide range of women who were perceived as outside of the norm of heterosexual reproduction um, through upper caste monogamous marriage, that those women became increasingly suspect over the course of the 19th century of committing abortions. Now, historians of abortion, whether in South Asia or in, across the Atlantic world, um, across the British Empire, know that, of course, abortion was extremely commonplace and it was a kind of everyday knowledge that was shared between women, between different forms of expertise. And so abortion shifts in the 19th century because it becomes increasingly criminalized and those shifts create new evidentiary paradigms. So how are you supposed to understand that a crime happened if you cannot see the evidence of the crime, this becomes like a a, a particular conundrum for the state. Um, and so over the course of that chapter, circularity, I look at what kind of evidentiary forms are used, how how do these evidentiary forms buttress against other forms, like the evidence of whether rape has occurred, how um, abortion, um, the evidentiary forms related to abortion are related to virginity testing, for example, all of which are um, related to one another in the forensic sciences that are developing in the the late 19th century. So, how does this relate? One might think, you know, after 1971, when abortion is at least partially legalized in India, that we would see a different trajectory for um, the nature of abortion because of its decriminalization um, in the second half of the 20th century in post colonial India. Now, of course, the first thing is that there are provisions that were part of the 1971 law that are regularly used in the adjudication of anything related to miscarriage under the Indian Penal Code. In particular, um, is the category of married and married women which becomes an important category in the aftermath of the law from 1971 where courts and judges are trying to determine whether a woman was married when she had consented to an abortion. So the second thing, of course, is that even after the revision of the law, There is a continued problem for transgender people, for um, people who are not identified as women under the category of the law, for how to determine whether an abortion is legal. So there's multiple ways in which the colonial legacy of this law, one in terms of its gendering, and then in terms of its gendering related to things like virginity testing, which creates a biological deterministic understanding of who can commit an abortion. Like, so that's the first. And then the second, of course, is the way the category of marriage has so much power in post colonial legal settings. And that is clear. And if you look at the adjudication of case law related to people who are accused of committing abortion outside of the terms of the 1971 law, that the accusation is usually related to a woman being unmarried, that people are participating in sexual. Um, relationships that are outside of marriage, so the paradigm of marriage continues to determine the structure of the law. Then, of course, it, um, we might think about the law in another way, which has to do with the way that medical expertise is essential to consent, to gaining consent for an abortion. So you can see that there are different paradigms, and that was related to the revision of the law as well in, to, in 2020 and 2021, which is how many medical experts have to give consent for a woman to commit an abortion. So what we see is that in India, of course, the great, a vast majority of abortions continue to happen in the shadows. um, And women's access to abortion continues to be severely limited because of the nature of the law and the way it endows medical expertise with the sole decision-making power. That medical expertise to determine, for example, whether a a fetus is viable, whether a woman should have the right to commit an abortion because she did not use um, contraceptive when she needed to. It endows medical authority with all kinds of decision making, kind of a patriarchal structure of decision making over a woman's body. Um, so it's not that a woman decides to c- commit, in, you know, that she wants to have reproductive autonomy and is easily able to access abortion. It's very much the opposite in contemporary India. And we can see that problem continuing because uh, from what I understand, I think it's in 2020, um, the statistics showed that uh, botched abortions were something like the third cause of maternal mortality in India so we know that the problem of abortion continues to be a um, continues to exist right now
0: Thank you so much for that those are really important insights on the colonial legacy of abortion laws and when you talk about the kind of patriarchal control over women's reproductive autonomy I was wondering whether this duality that you speak about in terms of how women, were, were viewed as pitiable given their suppression as a result of social customs, but also, on on the other hand, inherently deviant and promiscuous and therefore being in the position to have illegal abortions, whether this same logic then maps onto the law's need to protect women from unscrupulous doctors who perform illegal abortions or to protect women from pregnancies resulting from rape or incest, um, but also at the same time continue to criminalize abortion as a deterrent against their sexual perversion.
1: Right, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I, the, the paradox of social custom, as I describe it in the book, is that social custom is both used to produce women as ultimate victims who need the, state, st- the paternalistic protection of the state, and also that custom is what creates perversion within women to commit illegal acts. Um, And that women are prone to commit illegal and heinous in this is the language of the colonial state uh, and and many judges to commit heinous acts because of the nature of custom. So custom is both a way to blame women and a way to demonstrate the power of the state, exactly as you described. And we can see the logic of that in the adjudication of a wide range of um, issues. Right. So we see this with rape law. Um, in post-colonial India. We see this with related to, uh, of course, abortion. And I mean, we can think about why are there provisions? For example, why is it that a married couple has to demonstrate that the, the contraception failed, that rape or incest has happened, right? We know how difficult it is to demonstrate that rape has happened in India or to make to prove that. And so the it creates all of these barriers to abortion and, dem- and essentially says that the state has ultimate right to determine who has the right or access to an abortion. So the language of the 71 law and then its revision is not really about women's bodily autonomy. It's really about preventing circumstances that cause death to the mother. Right. It's a, a, the language is much more about the state helping protect particular individuals than it is about women's right to access
0: choice itself. From that, I'd like to move on to your um, discussion on marriage. Marriage is a way of protecting women. But typically, we've thought of marriage as a way of protecting women from other men. And that's the understanding we have from the discourse around women as chattel or property, marriage being a transfer of control of a woman's body and person in exchange for her protection. And you complicate this idea of marriage as a form of protection against other men and say that marriage is in fact a form of protection, but not against other men, but against women's own sexual and promiscuous natures. Can you possibly throw some light on what you meant?
1: Absolutely. Um, So one of the things that I argue over the course of the book is the way that upper caste Hindu monogamous marriage becomes normalized through a wide range of social theories, legal structures, medical apparatuses. And so really what we're looking at in the 19th century is the naturalization of upper caste Hindu marriage as the only accepted social institution, whereas all sorts of other behaviors are deemed deviant dangerous and oftentimes criminal. And we can think about that, whether it's related to Muslim marriage, um, which the colonial state condemns very easily, whether we're talking about polygamy and that includes upper caste Hindu polygamy that happened extensively in the 19th century in in Eastern India, as well as polygamy in other parts of India. So we see lots of colonial discourses condemning polygamy, for example, in Kerala or uh, polyamory as well. So we see essentially the condemnation of all other social categories and social forms, of course, related to lower caste Dalit communities and other sexual practices and norms that were part of a wide range of communities that were not upper caste Hindu monogamy. Over the course of the 19th century, the law essentially institutionalizes upper caste Hindu monogamy as the only way to be married. And the way that 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 process happens, at least ideologically, through sociological literature, through writings about the evolution of Indian society, through the writings of anti-colonial nationalist thinkers in Bengal in the 1910s and 20s, is through this paradoxical logic that says marriage is, in fact, upper caste Hindu marriage in the patriarchal household is in fact the liberatory promise for freedom for women. So the the paradox is not that marriage is a form of um, preventing women from, or a form of protection, but rather that marriage is a form of freedom, that actually through the protection of the patriarchal household, and the subordination of the married woman to her husband, that women paradoxically gain access to the true freedom that they can have because it frees women from the danger of their own sexuality. And that logic I find really powerful, right? It is the logic that we see in contemporary India all of the time, which says, I mean, we we see this all, you know, done by the BJP all of the time, where which says that women gain. Are, women are truly free only when they are within Hindu marriage. And we see this in the so called love jihad debates that have happened in the last few years, right? That certain women do not have the ability to consent. A woman trying to consent to an intercaste or interreligious marriage, in fact, does not have the right or ability that is, cognitive ability, consciousness itself, in order to consent to such a marriage. Because they are necessarily being coerced—that's the language of the Hindu right. Um, so we can see that that the logic of that that women do not, in fact, have the ability to make decisions for themselves; that the patriarchal household becomes the mode through which women can gain access to true liberation. That those arguments actually happened a hundred years earlier, um, and they happen through. Me- social theories that are seemingly progressive about you know, the, the liberation of Indian society from colonialism, about the necessity of Hindu society to gain access to modernity. So these are really difficult ideas to disentangle because, of course, they use the language of freedom, but they do so paradoxically to create new carceral systems that prevent women access to any kind of autonomy.
0: So in a way, then, uh, the control of women's sexuality becomes this logic that sort of reconciles the tension between non-criminalization of marital rape, which is non-consensual sex within marriage, and the criminalization of consensual sexual relationships or marriages of choice, say, in the context of anti-conversion laws love and love jihad, or the charges of false rape being brought by families of young girls that elope.
1: Right. Exactly. So we see this, right? That I mean, this demonstrates that at every level, women are denied the possibility of choice, right? And structurally, that's so. And we see that, I mean, I think marital rape is the best example. In some ways, I think my book is trying to tell a prehistory of the conditions that make the idea of marital rape so difficult to understand in the context of contemporary India, because marriage becomes the social sanction. To allow people to have access and power over we, women's sexuality—that's the—that is what marriage is. And I think it also goes back to the definition of rape itself under the penal code. Um, which, in if you look at the early, the earliest adjudication of rape, and we learn this through the work of the historian Ishitha Pandey and her work around consent and age of consent, what we learn is that really. Rape was not rape in how we understand it today around the question of consent. It was about when you should have access to a a female body in marriage. So the earliest like if you look at the earliest um, cases in forensic textbooks, for example, the question is, is the girl a girl or is she a woman? Does this person have access to the body yet because of puberty? And so puberty becomes a way to define whether rape has existed or not, I mean, has happened or not. So really, from the earliest case law, you see that rape is deeply tied to the question of the age of consent, not the nature of the consenting woman. And those things are really, I think, distinct from one another. And today, like so My book then is trying to demonstrate how the naturalization of marriage happens over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. That is to say how one vision of upper caste Hindu monogamy becomes the singular institutional form of marriage and what kind of sanctions are allowed through that institutional form of upper caste Hindu monogamy. And the answer of course, is that upper caste Hindu monogamy is centered on the idea that men have access total access and power over a woman's body. So when you see debates about it today, right, you, you hear these judgments where these patriarchal judges are like, well, of course, a man should have access and the ability to have sexual intercourse with his wife, right? Because the idea is that the state says, well, they're married. And, and so it becomes incredibly challenging if marriage is about men having access and power over a woman's sexuality, then marital rape, funda- like fundamentally the idea of marital rape and the, the kind of feminist advocacy around creating new structures to define marital rape, that it becomes difficult. It, it hits at the very heart of the nature of marriage as we understand it under the law.
0: Thank you, Dr. Mitra. And to go back to this idea of upper caste Hindu monogamous marriage as the only way to be. In your book, you talk about um, female sexual deviance understood primarily through the category of prostitute. And you explain how colonial administrators and elite Indian uh, men treated all women outside upper caste Hindu monogamous marriages as prostitutes. How does this map onto the sexual violence against women belonging to Dalit, Bahujan, and Adivasi communities? And even probably the recent instances of online sexual violence against Muslim women?
1: Absolutely. Uh, it's a great question. So in the book, I argue that a huge range of behaviors, practices, identities, feminized sexuality get criminalized Um, condemned and treated as deviant over the course of the 19th century, and that included really a wide range of types of people. What I argue is that these wide-ranging forms of behavior get consolidated through this concept of the prostitute, that that category, and we see this even today in India, that the kind of cruel use of the category, you call someone a prostitute, you call someone a whore, and I'm using that language, you know, uh, tentatively, but trying to demonstrate the power and violence of that language, that that those, when you call someone a prostitute, you're trying to condemn them socially, right? There's a moral valence to the category. Um, over the course of the book, I demonstrate how many types of people get perceived as the prostitute. Um, and I say over a wide range of women, including the courtesan and the dancing girl, the devadasis of a wide range of spaces. It also includes high caste Hindu widows. Um, So it is women who participated in monogamous Hindu marriage, but then fall out of uh, high caste uh, marriage as well. It includes polygamous women, low caste Muslim women, particular women who are working, right? Who, Who enter into industrial labor, indentured women who are transported across the empire from beggars and vagrants uh, women who are followers of religious sex, so we might think of, of Vaishnavs as part of this, right? Women who are part of Vaishnav sects in the 19th century are perceived as prostitutes. Then we have stage performers. We have professional singers. We have women who are temporary wives, according to the state, uh, both Muslim and Hindu. Uh, women theater actors. We have women who are nurses, urban industrial workers, uh, and then, of course, domestic servants or women who are doing servitude or are enslaved in the household. And so I'm naming all of these, the the types that I name in the book, because one of the things that you probably can tell is that many of these categories correlate to lower caste and Dalit women um, and and Muslim women. So really we see the category prostitute becomes a way to obscure the question of caste domination and supremacy through a language of moralism that is, you know, that is perpetuated by the state, but also adhered to and then perpetuated by Hindu upper caste men. So upper caste men begin to, you know, use the language of the condemnation of prostitution and the condemnation of women's sexual deviancy outside of marriage as a way to, in fact, subordinate and engage in in Hindu supremacist, uh, upper caste supremacist practices. So you call the Dalit woman who is working as a household servant, as sexually deviant, as a mode through which to control and condemn that social category, and sorry, that that person who holds that social role. Um, So there's many ways we can relate this to how we think about, I mean, the first thing I would say is, in 1916, 1917, when it's published, uh, B.R. Ambedkar writes an essay called Castes in India, where he writes about the problem of what he terms the surplus woman um, for Hindu upper caste uh, society. And in that text, he describes the way in which a wide range of ideas and behaviors get linked to what he calls the surplus man and woman. Those are people who are outside of Hindu upper caste monogamous marriage. So of course we know caste is perpetuated through marriage, right, caste is held and adhered to through marriage and then of course a descent is determined through patriarchal marriage. And so what Ambedkar argues is that there's a wide range of people, particularly the Hindu widow, the unmarried woman, the unmarried child who get classified as, the, as as surplus. They are surplus to the economy of upper caste domination because they live outside of upper caste marriage. And so early in the 1910s, we see Ambedkar is making this argument about caste supremacy being linked to the control and erasure of women's sexuality. So that is a caste critique that he makes very early. Um, but it is something that's not really taken up after he writes this incredibly important essay. It's one of his first publications. Um, it's not taken up in Indian sociology. So I'm mentioning this because we can see the legacy of these problems in all, in many kinds of ways. The first I would say is related to questions of sexual violence in Northern, North India. Like if we think about UP, uh, rape cases that have happened in UP, um, where, uh, Dalit girl, and I'm going to use the category girl explicitly, often young girl under the age of consent in contemporary India, will have been raped or gang raped and killed. And the evidentiary, like the ways in which the police, for example, go out of their way to cremate a body to prevent any evidence of a crime, the crime of rape. So the forensic buttresses against the police complicity in upper caste domination and supremacy so the essentially the police are assisting as we know very well upper caste domination and the perpetuation of violence against dalit women and girls all of the time so that forensic question of the, the question of how we use evidence to demonstrate that a rape has occurred that is disappeared by the state by the police in order to to Prevent any kind of prosecution of upper caste men who participate in this in these regularized, systematized, routinized, routinized forms of violence that affect Dalit girls and women that affect Muslim women uh, every day, in at least right now in India. So that's one way we can think about this history. Um, but of course, we can think of it in terms of, as I mentioned, the love jihad laws, which um, one of the one of the key ideas that i look at in the first chapter of the book which looks at um, essentially the claim to origins the way the ancient ideas of so, so-called hindu sexuality are used by modern social theorists and sociologists to make an argument for hindu upper caste supremacy that of course one of the major ideological narratives used in the late 19th and early 20th century is about muslim invasion and the way that Muslim despotism and Muslim violence against Hindus is enacted through sexual violence upon Hindu women. So in the 1910s and 20s, we can see deeply communalist um, Hindu supremacist texts using the claim of textual origins in Sanskrit, using claims of evolutionary theory and science to make an argument against Muslims and an argument about Muslim men's sexual deprivation and degradation. So that argument, you can see a, a full straight line through to contemporary you know India, where we see Hindutva that the Hindu, Hindutva ideologies of the problem or the kind of danger of Hindu of, sorry Muslim men's sexuality as a perpetual threat. That, that argument, you know, of course, starts in the, in the early 20th century. And there are scholars, extraordinary scholars like Professor Charu Gupta uh, at Delhi who have extensively documented the direct line or the kind of deep genealogies from the early, the late 19th and early 20th century ideas of communalist violence that, imagine Muslim men as sexually depraved to contemporary ideologies that have so much power and effect, right, that lead to lynchings of Hindu of, of Muslim men today.
0: Those are very interesting insights on the links between um, late 19th and 20th century ideologies and what is happening in contemporary India. And... Um, Following on to the idea of surveillance and the history of surveillance, I'd like to ask you about how you talk about a range of state and non-state actors, such as the police, the doctors, even washermen for that matter, surveilling women to catch them in their illicit acts or prove their sexual or social deviance in some ways. Even within the home, we see marriage acting as a form of surveillance, keeping women away from promiscuity. How does this history of surveillance practices in pre, in colonial India allow us to understand or complicate the use of other forms of surveillance practices which are permitted by law and bureaucratic practice in India? For example, if we look at the way policing happens under the Preconception and Prenatal Diagnostic Techniques Act, which is used to prevent female feticide, or the legal and extra-legal consent and documentation requirements necessary for seeking abortion under the Medical Determination of Pregnancy Act, or even the mandatory reporting requirements under the POXO Act involving sexual activities of minors.
1: Absolutely. I mean... I mean, one of the things that we can see, whether we're talking about the control of what I call feminized sexuality um, or more broadly, the control of sexuality is the extraordinary power of the police. Uh, in In the book, one of the key arguments that I am trying to make in the book is that policing actually is a kind of sociological exercise. That is to say, the police are critical in their position to determine what's happening at the level of the social. They are trying to understand what's happening in everyday India, and this is colonial India, and that in fact, women's sexuality and the argument about the danger of women's deviant sexuality becomes a way of empowering and creating structures of knowledge by the police it becomes in fact the infrastructure upon which the police infiltrate everyday life in india as we understand it in the 19th century that infrastructure of course only expands in the 20th century so it's what we live with today and as you mentioned there's there's a there's a hugely complicated network of people who participate in the surveillance of women and sexual minorities it is of course the state It is the formal mechanisms of the police, but it is also, as you mentioned, everyday people who are complicit or actively collude with the police in order to lead to the prosecution of women. And we see this around abortion cases in the late 19th century, where I found um, in the third chapter of the book, I describe how I found these very rare documents of petitions written by people who were accusing Hindu widows of committing abortions. And of course, there were all sorts of reasons why someone would write to the states, petition the state to say that women had committed an abortion, particularly Hindu widows who had inherited their family's property. So the in-laws family, for example, would make the accusation that the daughter-in-law who was now a widow had in fact engaged in forms of illicit sexuality, had committed an abortion in order to disinherit her from her access to property rights. So there's lots of reasons why these kind of um surveilling structures happen. One of the major or one of the i guess most interesting forms of surveillance that I found is, of course, the dobi or the washer person, the washerman, who essentially was was given the mandate in in you know rural areas in small villages across eastern India to look for whether a woman has menstruated or not so at the level of the level of surveillance is just extraordinary, right? It is the way a woman moves. It is where she is walking, but it is also her undergarments, right? It's also just the possibility of her bleeding. So if a woman were late on menstruation, the argument was that she had committed an abortion, or she had gotten pregnant illicitly and, and committed an abortion. But because abortion was so difficult to detect, the argument was entirely based on whether or not a woman had menstruated. So the evidentiary paradigms become... I mean first of all they rapidly expand because abortion is such a difficult crime to detect in the 19th century and what we see in the 20th century as you describe is the increase and in transformation of reproductive technologies in particular right the creation of the ultrasound in the late 1970s that creates the possibility of determining the sex of a child what's interesting in the 70s is that that discourse about um feticide about prenatal uh, abortion that sex selective abortion becomes again a way to criminalize women for determining whether to choose the sex of their child so a technology that is purportedly about saving girls right which is to say that uh, the the outlaw of abortion of sex selective abortion that happens in india That is a feminist, you know, that that feminists push for also paradoxically becomes a way of criminalizing and creating new modes of surveillance over women and their behavior. And that that this is, of course, the paradox that structurally the state and the legal structures are patriarchal. So even when there are reforms that are about saving the lives of girls and women, that those that when those reforms are in fact implemented in their actuality in everyday life, those are actually often used to surveil women um, and their and their social practices. But we might see this in other ways, right? So one of the uh, one of the um, things that I've written about is about the 377 judgment that, of course, came down um, and the the writing down again by the Supreme Court by the Indian Supreme Court of 377. Now, in that very long judgment. Which is very important. One of the major arguments that um, the five judges make is that there needs to be a massive reform of policing in India, because the police are endowed with the most amount of power with relation to surveilling sexual minorities, trans people, queer people, women, and particularly, I'm thinking here of sex workers. So, and and I'm talking about legal sex workers who are who are unionized that. Policing becomes a kind of space between the legal structures of the state and the actualities of everyday life. That is to say that the police will use the shadow of a law to harass um, and gain access to money and you know bribes from marginalized individuals who are just trying to live their lives. Um, and so one of the major calls in that judgment is a call to reform the police. But of course, if we look at the history of police in India, one of the things we see is that among the least trained, least educated, least um, especially trained related to sensitivity training are the police. Right. So we know this again to go back to um, these extraordinarily violent rape and murder cases that the police are the ones who participate in the cremation of evidence of of people's bodies um, of of young girls who have died as a result of of rape and and murder, that the the police are the ones participating or complicit or colluding with upper caste um, structures to ensure upper caste supremacy. And we see this again when we, I mean, right now we're seeing this all of the time related to uh the marginalization and violence enacted upon muslims and uh you know that the police are participating this is not surprising because they are the most undertrained like you know apparatus of the state so and I, that's something for us to think about i mean i think as people who do legal advocacy and who are doing feminist work on the ground and that is i know something that that people who are doing legal advocacy like your group and like so many others have been doing, which is the no- the knowledge that the police are the ones who are given the most amount of power in terms of surveillance, in terms of dominate structures of domination. Um, and yet there are f- so few reforms. So we can all advocate for the decriminalization of homosexuality. uh, for 377. But how does that change the everyday life of people? We can advocate for reforms and revisions to rape or abortion laws. But unless there are reforms that actually change institutional practices, particularly, for example, related to the collection of forensic evidence, then very little can be done. Or rather, that is the side of advocacy. It's not just the law on the book. It also must be the way the law is enacted and used in everyday life.
0: Thank you, Dr. Mitra. That is indeed an important message to leave us with. Thank you so much for talking to us about your work on deviant female sexuality and about how the idea continues to be used in contemporary India to regulate and control the lives and bodies of women and sexual minorities.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. These were extraordinary questions, and I'm so glad to be engaged in conversation with you.
0: Thank you for giving us so much to think about.